2: Hey everybody, Robert here. Um, I recorded this with Jason, uh, about two days before, um, Wizards of the Coast put out an announcement, uh, completely backpedaling on everything they had been planning to do to the open gaming license. Um, 89% of a survey of 15,000 fans said they were not happy with, the uh, Wizards, uh, deauthorizing, um, the 1.0 open gaming license and, uh. I mean, what it looks like is a lot of people unregistered from D&D Beyond and um, a lot of people called in complaining and the numbers folks at Wizards panicked. um, And as a result, they are completely folding on the plans to uh, rescind uh, or deauthorize the open gaming license um, and in fact have announced that they are making it, uh, the exact terms they use are irrevocable. And uh, yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, and they they put everything under an irrevocable Creative Commons license, so this is all just breaking. Um, but I think it's broadly good news. Anytime a giant company chooses to do something kind of crummy with a piece of what what I would say is actually pretty meaningful intellectual heritage, uh, and then they get slapped down and panic and reverse course, that's a good thing. Um, it it shows a number of things, which one of which probably the most important of which is that. The, uh, the community of people who recognize the value in these kinds of games, in this, uh, this pastime, this recreational activity, um, also fundamentally value the essence of like, what is open source ideology, which is nice. Like It's nice to know that the open source folks, we can still throw a punch every now and again, even if it's just a punch at Wizards of the Coast. So, uh, happy ending, everybody. Happy ending. Also, uh, the good folks at Paizo sold out of eight months worth of Pathfinder books in like two weeks. So that's nice, too. Ah, it could happen here is the podcast that you are listening to right now. I am Robert Evans. This is a show about things falling apart and sometimes putting them back together. And today we're we're taking a little bit of a different tact. In recent weeks, you've listened to us cover a wide variety of issues, uh, from conflicts in places like Myanmar to conflicts here at home uh, in the city of Atlanta um to deep dives in history and all that all that good stuff that that you know and love us for. Today, we are talking about a subject that is unusually close to my heart, Dungeons and Dragons. Now, I'm going to guess just given the nature of our listenership, a decent chunk of you grew up playing D&D um and just because of how really shockingly suddenly it's become much more popular than it than it ever was previously and much more mainstream a lot of you may have encountered it as an adult um there's a lot that's actually been written kind of sociologically on on what dungeons and dragons is and one point that some people will make is that it's it's kind of the first new game that we had that that human beings made up since like chess um by, by which i mean you, you have had war games for a very long period of time, but the, the concept of a role-playing game and the way that, that D&D is, where you're essentially sitting down with a group of people and engaging in an act of collaborative storytelling that's kind of buttressed by a system of rules, that's actually a pretty new idea. Now, now elements of this have existed... F- forever. Um, and in fact, kind of an interesting fact you'll run into is that in the late medieval period, a lot of jousts had role-playing elements, including ones where like rulers and, and their their court would dress up as the knights of the round table and act in character as those knights. So elements of all of this stuff have existed for a while. But when Dungeons and Dragons kind of came together as a game for the first time, it was um it, it, it is kind of worth seeing it as as something really new and valuable in the history of play and the history of human creativity. Um so as a result of that, I, I do kind of think I, I personally think there's something a little bit sacred about that that basic idea. And one of the things that's really interesting to me about the industry that grew up around Dungeons and Dragons is that there have always been a lot of people in it who I think feel the same way. Um and I think one of these people was a guy named Ryan Dancy and and Ryan Dancy, Um, was vice president in charge of Dungeons & Dragons at Wizards of the Coast for a while. Um, And he helped actually negotiate the sale of the Dungeons & Dragons property to Wizards of the Coast when the company that had been distributing it fell apart. And Dancy was a big part of the institution in the year 2000 of what became known as the Open Gaming License. And basically what this meant is that the, the the set of rules that, that d and worked by and at around 2000, which was, I, th- I think you, you would call it like 3.0, was the, the, the system in place, basically got elements of the mechanics got effectively open sourced. Um, and so Wizards of the Coast um, went from what had been the previous move of the people who'd owned d d which was kind of to oppose people trying to make third party content using the ruled source, to embracing it and allowing it to do that freely. Um, And now I'm going to introduce our guest who is one of the people who uh, is kind of the one of the most influential folks in what happened after this because once the open gaming license came into effect there's suddenly this galaxy of new games and supplemental materials that people start making um, which you know wizards is not profiting from directly but which the hobby profits from um and one of the people who has who has been most influential in that is our guest today Jason Bowman Jason you are the the game a lead game designer at Piazzo and the creator of Pathfinder which is the I mean, it's not Dungeons and Dragons, but it, it uses as its base that kind of open gaming uh, system. And it's, it's what I play when I get a chance to sit down and play a role-playing game. So first off, Jason, thank you for several thousand hours of, uh, of my, my childhood and early adulthood um, spent playing Pathfinder.
3: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, uh, Paizo kind of spun off from Wizards of the Coast um you know back in the early days of the open game license and we were their uh, official publishers of their magazine until that kind of came to an end and then we we started making our own game based off the open game license
2: and did i did i is did i get all that right earlier do you have any kind of clarification you'd I, like to add before we move further into the conflict and there is a conflict we're not just talking about how cool d yeah, and pathfinder are
3: <laughs> i think there's a there's an interesting thing to note about games games are kind of weird when it comes to copyright and ownership and Mm -hmm. it's kind of why the open game license is so important right so tsr the company that owned dungeons and dragons before wizards of the coast was pretty pretty litigious as you mentioned Mm -hmm. um but they ended up getting into kind of a bind because you know the game itself is one that encourages people to make their own content Mm -hmm. to kind of homebrew stuff and invent their own stories and what it comes down to is that, you know, ultimately game mechanics can't be copyrighted. They, that's yeah. been, been long held that that th- those sorts of things you cannot copyright. That's why you see so many versions of like Scrabble that aren't Scrabble.
2: Um, yeah, and it's why anyone can make a basketball team or a basketball league and play basketball. You don't have exactly, to get the NBA's approval to play fucking basketball.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the open game license wasn't about giving everyone permission to use rules, which is something they could already kind of do. It was about giving them kind of a safe harbor, a a place that everybody involved kind of knew that this was all okay. No one was going to be filing frivolous lawsuits and that you could use kind of direct references without having to be a copyright lawyer or or (laughs) retaining a giant staff. It allowed a lot of very little businesses to kind of spring up making, hey, here's my cool adventure that I ran for my group. You can buy it and play it with your group now. Little things like that.
2: And and I don't think it's for nothing that Number one, a huge thing, and this has become as Silicon Valley has kind of turned more mercenary, this has become less of a thing, but a massive thing in the early history of Silicon Valley and the tech industry was the open source movement, you know, was the idea that a lot of people should be able to collaboratively work and iterate on things without having to worry about who owns the basic idea, right? you know Linux is is a great example of this. and the um the ideology behind the open source movement was a, a big influence in the open gaming license. I mean, Dancy, kind of admits that himself. I, there's a quote where he says that like, yeah, I think we need to embrace some of these ideas at the heart of the open source movement because I think it will be a good business decision for Wizards of the Coast. It will, on the whole, even if we're not profiting directly from every sort of like thing that people make off of this, the fact that it's going to cause the, the, the hobby to explode will benefit us. And I think he's been proven right in that because D&D has gone from this thing that like I got bullied for in high school to there's these massive podcasts there's been tv shows that are just people playing the game like it has reached um this level i never really expected it would of like critical and and mass acceptance which has been really cool to see it's been one of the things that i've been happiest about watching occur socially in the last couple of decades yeah you can't disagree that the the business case wasn't super tight right
3: uh the yeah. way that the OGL got all of the other game companies, many of which had their own entirely different games. In the early 2000s, they all abandoned them and started making content for D&D. Yeah. Um, And that just kind of carried forward a a large swath of kind of the game industry, which is pretty cottage, right? There's a bunch of small players. There's not a lot of large corporations in here. Um, You know, uh, in fact, Wizards is by far the largest. And so you got a bunch of small game companies that are are seeing this as a great opportunity to kind of play in the big pool. And uh, a lot of them followed suit.
2: So obviously the reason we are here today is that a poll has been cast recently <laughs> over what has up until now been kind of a lovely thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wizards of the Coast got a new CEO pretty recently, right? Um, yes, yeah, C- Cynthia
3: Williams is, is relatively new. Yeah,
2: yeah and, and there is basically murmuring coming from the company that's like, we don't think d and d is properly capitalized. we We believe that there's uh, we are leaving money on the table here. And kind of in the wake of some of that stuff coming out, they announced a series of changes to the open gaming license. and if you if you kind of want to take it from here and explain because i've 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 read and listened to a number of different folks, some saying like, well, it's not as bad as people are are fearing, and some folks saying like this would effectively kill a huge chunk of the hobby and a bunch of the companies that have grown up in the wake of the open gaming license. And I'm, I'm interested in your take on what, what wizards is doing here and what actually kind of is at risk.
3: So, yeah, I think you, you, you've clued into the start of this, which was in uh, uh, early December of last year, uh, Hasbro earnings call. uh, Cynthia basically came out and said, D and D was under monetized. And they had been spending the entire previous year really proliferating Magic the Gathering, which is their other giant brand, and kind of really making a lot of money, like talks of like it is a billion-dollar brand. And um, as a result, you know, there was kind of some murmurings and some rumblings going through December, um, talking about a new version of the OGL. Wizards themselves came out on December 21st, so just a few days before Christmas, and said that a new OGL was coming and that. It had notes in it about royalty reporting and, um, you know, mentioning that folks won't need to pay until later um, and that, um, you know, really this new license is only going to be to make books and PDFs. So they said this on December 21st. And the royalty part of that is was really quite challenging because it said if you make over $750,000 a year, um, you might have to pay a sizable percentage of your your
2: your gross profit like twenty five percent, and that's terrifying. Which, when you're talking about a business and and this is not the gaming industry does not run on huge margins. Um, no, no, <laughs> unless you're like making Warhammer models that you're selling for a hundred and twenty dollars for a piece of plastic that's tight. Yeah. yeah, the margins yeah. are pretty tight. Um so saying like past, you know, 750k, your company with however many employees has to give a quarter like that that'll sink people. Yeah, I think a lot of companies the the larger ones couldn't sustain that,
3: right? I mean, I think saying pay 25% of your gross over 750k just basically means make sure you only make $749,000 that year. Um I I do think that that is that is a real Real dangerous thing to a lot of these businesses. Now, for a lot of the content creators, this is never going to matter. But I do believe that part of this was, you know, seeing gigantic multi-million dollar Kickstarters happening and kind of going, "Where's our yeah. cut?"
2: Yeah, we want a piece of this. Yeah. Um, and the answer to that is that, like, I, you know, and it's problematic just crediting the creation of D and D solely to to Gary Gygax. But like the people who came up with and play tested and made. DD a thing and then the people who iterated and changed and evolved it from you know the original game to d um in the years of thaco to to 3.0 huh. like like morally outside of like what i think is justifiable in, in corporate law and stuff like morally i think it's fucked up to say that like some company forever gets a piece of that when what it is is like human beings coming together to try to figure out a, a the the most efficient way to run an engine for storytelling. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, it's, 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 it's fucked up to me to think about it this way.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original Boxer Briefs for Women
2: So they announced this alteration to the open gaming license, and I'm going to guess those were some dark days at, uh, at the PSO offices. So, so
3: yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, most of us at Paizo at that point in time were kind of on vacation, and uh, we kind of just filed it away, and we're like, okay, well, it's a draft, and they're just talking. So, um, you know, we get to back, you know, from our break, and it's the beginning of the year, and this is now January 5th is when a bombshell article drops on Gizmodo by uh Linda Codega. Yeah. and they really laid out kind of what was in this proposed license uh, apparently having had portions of it leaked to them yeah. and um you know it confirmed a 25% margin but maybe only 20% for for kickstarters which then got confirmed by someone at Kickstarter uh on Twitter um and it also included a bit in there that there was a clause that said Watsy could Wizards of the Coast could mm-hmm. use any of the content you create under the license for free, never having to make pay royalties to you, never having to give you any credit. They could just take your work, um, and and they they phrased it in such a way that they, it sounded like it
2: was you
3: know well just in case we make something similar, we don't want to get sued.
2: But yeah, and we're talking about just to clarify it for people. We're not talking about like if you introduce mechanics because again that that's not what this is about. We're talking about if you create characters, if yeah. you create a, if you build stories, they, they have are, a right to utilize that story that you've made. Things that are a- actually
3: copyrightable, right? Yeah. Stories, ideas and expressions are copyrightable. Um uh, you know, but rules aren't. So yeah, it, that yeah. That drops on the fifth and on the ninth the full draft document leaks. And you've got streamers and influencers reading it live on YouTube. Yeah. And this thing just starts to snowball. Um, and from the ninth forward, things start moving very quickly. Um, on the 10th, a number of major kind of third party publishers. These are folks who print with the OGL, um, announced that they were not going to go with that. And, one of the largest ones, you know, announced, yeah, I'm not doing that at all. I'm going to create my entire brand new game. I'm leaving all of this behind. Yeah. And the fervor on social media turned into basically a firestorm. Yeah. Um, it, it and it's really, really a sign rolling. of
2: how how much more, how, how many people both love and play versions of this game that there was so much media attention from like major media organs. Like this, this was not just... You know, those of us who are into gaming, um, you know, freaking out over this change that Wizards of the Coast has made. This was like, I mean, I was seeing it everywhere. Very few things have like broken as, as widely in my media ecosystem as as this.
3: Uh, there was an article, there was a story about it today on NPR.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> um, so there was another one, there was one other important aspect in the leak um, that I think is really important. One is that the new OGL could be canceled at any time with 30 days notice, and they were claiming that they were deauthorizing the previous OGL, which up to this point, everyone kind of assumed was irrevocable, right? It It has clauses in it that say, if we ever put out a new version of this license, you can ignore it and continue to use this one, right? But it uses this word in there that says you can continue to use any authorized version of the license. never minding that the contract doesn't mention how you might deauthorize a license. Um, So this draft of the OGL says that they're deauthorizing the previous version, which puts all of the work of the past 20 years into doubt. And at this point in time, the fans are revolting, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There there are a lot of folks canceling their subscriptions to D&D Beyond, which is kind of their uh, in-house character generation tools that you pay a monthly subscription for. Um, and things really start spinning out of hand to the point where D&D actually has to respond to it and and pull back um, and kind of retreat from this and saying, hey, we're going to answer your questions. What you saw was just a draft, um, you know, and uh, that was never supposed to leak. Um, but it was at this point in time that we actually uh, launched. Uh, our own license. We had been talking to some of the other publishers, and and by that I mean we Paizo, uh, to create a brand new safe harbor for folks to publish under. Now, it's 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 not going to be owned by us. It's going to be owned by a law firm that actually drafted the first OGL. But you started to see this giant fork happening um, where a lot of folks are just abandoning ship.
2: And, I mean, what do you think this means? Because obviously Wizards has already announced a, a a new version of the of the OGL beyond like the one that got leaked and I, I think are kind of in damage control mode do you think this is something that like there is any way for them to pull back from or do you think that kind of the inherent instability of the OGL now that they're kind of making these claims that well we can actually change the deal anytime we want has that sort of irrevocably altered the ground I, I think that they've
3: damaged a lot of people's trust in them. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think over, over the past few weeks, especially when they went silent and then frankly, the first retraction was really kind of awkward and filled with kind of like, well, we didn't lose. We won. This was great. Now we learned how to make a better license, right? They're clearly Mm -hmm. stepping back, stepping back, stepping back. And their most recent step back, which just happened, uh, you know, on the 18th. So, you know, a week ago, uh, or so, Uh, basically said that they were going to release the core of the game to Creative Commons, and their new license was going to be irrevocable and last forever, but it still contains a lot of kind of poison pills, things like we are still deauthorizing the first version of the license, Mm -hmm. and uh, we have this morality clause that says if we find your content offensive, we can just kill your license without recourse. Yeah, which Um, is
2: fucked up because... (sighs) I mean, I, I don't think I need to explain why that's fucked up. Um, that that puts and that puts a lot of the most creative kind of projects too at risk. Like, I God, that's that's ugly. I mean,
3: I don't think anybody in this industry wants to see any you know deeply offensive, problematic content. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that is frankly a lot more marginal and and explores yeah. you know issues of the human condition that folks might want to explore in a game and. Who's to say that someone at Wizards might go, well, sorry, that's offensive to me. You don't get to make it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody wants to invest their creativity and risk their business on what someone they will never have met thinks of their work.
2: Yeah. It, the problem is not that like I want as the most offensive role-playing games I can get. The problem is like, well, who determines what offensive is? And it's a, a bunch of lawyers and businessmen at Wizards of the Coast. At least that's the worry, right? Like. Not necessarily yeah, and, that that's how it would work out, but you you just you get no guarantee. And
3: this stuff this stuff evolves over time, right? You know what what is fine today may be problematic tomorrow. We learn those things, and we evolve yeah. from them, and we change. But I don't think anybody wants to have kind of the this you know axe hanging over our head of like, well, sorry, that's now offensive, so we're going to kill your yeah. entire license.
2: Yeah. So where are we? Where are we now? Like, it looks like. Paizo, Yaller are moving forward with the ORC along with a number of other people. Can you give me an idea of what that's going to look like? Because one of the things that that does concern me is, um, and this is a very selfish concern, but like I grew very comfortable with you know 3.5, which is essentially the machinery that underpins Pathfinder. And um, it's one of those things like if I didn't play again for 20 years, I could probably sit down with the material in my head and run a campaign just because so much of that stuff is burnt into my brain. Are we like what is the mechanics kind of underlying the ORC, and how is it going to be different from what we've we've gotten used to?
3: So I'll say this: we're we're in the very early days on this, and what what's happening right now is we are you know in coordination with a number of other publishers working with Azora Law, and they are the the people who wrote the original OGL uh, and had you know fully intended for it to be a perpetual license, and we're working with them to to create kind of a a rules neutral license that the entire game industry can use to share work. Because there's, there's like a lot of nuance that was in the OGL that allowed different companies to share creative work together. And a lot of companies used it as kind of a bridging license, even if they weren't using Dungeons and Dragons at all. They would just use the license as a framework to kind of exchange ideas. And that's what we want the Orc to be. The Orc needs to be a license that allows everybody in the game industry to open up their content and share work with each other and iterate and expand and grow. That's our real goal. Um, and ultimately we are not going to own it. No, one's going to own it. We're actually going to try and find a nonprofit to administer the license going forward so that we don't ever have to worry about this again. Nobody wants to go through what we've been going through for the past three weeks. So that's kind of, that's kind of one half of it. The other half is what happens to Pathfinder. um, and obviously, you know, when it came to Pathfinder second edition, we rewrote the game from scratch and it is now fully our game. It's something we own and we control. Um, so we feel pretty confident that we're just going to keep on rolling with uh, with Pathfinder. And ultimately, you know, we don't actually believe that the previous version of the OGL even can be rescinded. Um, yeah. So I guess we'll see how that plays
0: out.
4: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
2: I can see this having an overall positive outcome just in that if we get this new kind of thing that creators can use um as a as a core point to branch off from when they are when they're making games that's actually under solid legal footing that isn't kind of reliant upon the whims of a publicly traded company then in the long term you know that is in the long term it's 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 better for creators because it's more like the way things were for the first 20 years of the ogl um do you I mean, like, it, what do you see as kind of some pitfalls in sort of trying to trying to make this this happen, trying to move things in this kind of more productive direction?
3: Well, I think you can always, you know, kind of fracture, you know, balkanize the the market to the point yeah. where where everybody has such a small slice of it that, you know, no one can really get the kind of numbers they need to succeed because you're you're right. It is it is a pretty small industry, the margin on you know, printed media isn't exactly great. But I, I think a lot of these companies do have the numbers to survive. But I, I think that right now, everybody's trying to figure out how to replace parts of what has just been lost. Um, Everybody's trying to kind of go in their different directions right now. And some of that is going to be really good because I think we're going to get a lot of really great games. Um, And I'm excited to see them. Um, yeah. But I do think that, the, I think one of the worries just for the industry is that They kind of all had one flag they were rallying around, and now everyone's running in different directions and hoping that after all of this shakes out, everybody has kind of enough gamers to support a community. I think it's going to work out. I think that there's a number of standouts happening already. Um, You know, MCDM and Kobold are obviously racing to do things. There's a bunch of kind of known players in the industry, us, Kobold, Chaosium, Green Ronin. All of them are pretty big companies positioned to kind of have good player bases with great games and mechanics underneath them. So I I think the big loser here is frankly Wizards of the Coast. They, you know, up up until, you know, the end of this year or the the end of last year, they were undisputedly the largest uh, game company in the entire tabletop role-playing game industry. And that's still true today. But there's a lot of cracks in that armor, and it does make me wonder how it's going to fracture out over time and how many of their fans, many of which never heard of Pathfinder, never heard of, you know, these other game companies, Call of Cthulhu and stuff, are now suddenly exploring these games and, you know, frankly, the wealth of uh, smaller indie and zine games that are out there. There's so much to play right now, and Watsi has just told their fan base,
2: hey, go check it out. It's interesting because it it kind of speaks to something that i've i've always loved and and also found kind of sociologically fascinating about tabletop gaming which is you just brought up call of cthulhu Which is a game that is I I don't believe is under the control of the original company that it was made under. People have been playing versions of Call of Cthulhu for a very long time. Dungeons and Dragons has gone through multiple owners. Shadowrun, uh, which I played a lot of as a kid, has gone through multiple owners, and the rule sets change, and the company that is profiting from the official licensed material changes. But no matter what happens, even when those companies go under, the games keep going, and that's there's something I think unique there that is, it's not the case even like, um, you know, there's versions of it that happens in, in PC gaming, but there's also this thing that happens that, that a lot of gamers I know complain about, which is that like periodically shit will get removed for whatever reason. A company goes under, a game is not supported and that game is just gone. That little piece of culture is just gone. And it seems like so far, I'm not going to say in every case, because obviously there have been games that have, have, you know, people stopped playing and stuff in the tabletop space. But it it's there's this continuity, you know, even in the face of of changings of the guards in terms of like what companies are successful um of like people keep playing these the same games and iterating them and changing them. And um I don't know, that's that's always one of the things I found most inspiring about the way tabletop works.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I do think the legacy of tabletop role playing games is one of cooperation. It was there from yeah. the start, right? You know, the the moment Gary and is uh, and Dave and folks, you know, got together and started turning their you know miniatures war game and giving characters to them, and everyone started building a story together. That spark was the start, yeah, and it's carried through in. A million different ways and a million different tables. And even if, you know, uh, the companies go under or disappear, people with those books are still playing those games. There's yeah. plenty of people still playing AD&D first edition, right? You know, yeah. they never left
2: and they're fine with that. And and I salute them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think about and again, this is like one of the reasons this has such a place in my heart. I I started playing AD&D. But, you know, it was – my friends and I would play at, a, at Cub Scout campouts, and we didn't have access to dice. So we, we had the rule books. We had, like, the monster's manual and the player's guide, and we used those as jumping off points. And we would bring, like, a bunch of nickels, and we would, we would figure out ways to, like, okay, for this action, you got to get three heads out of five flips or something like that, and that's a success in this. And, like, so many people have stories like that, have variants of that, because it, it really is fundamentally – what you need for any of these games, which is what makes them so durable, is a, a group of people to want to sit around a table and tell a story together, which is rad.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's nothing else like it, right? Yeah. Uh, th- there really isn't. And that's why I think you're seeing so much fervor over this, because for a lot of people, this is very deeply personal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Gathering together with your friends and telling a story together, that's something you and your friends built. And, you know, uh, if you happen to find a way to make some money off of it, great. That's that's your creativity coming to life. And frankly, kind of having a big giant corporation come in and say, hey, where's my cut? Is is not really very fun.
2: (laughs) No. Uh, And I my heart goes out to 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 you and your colleagues over how stressful this last three or four weeks has been. And I I hope that we're past the worst of it. Um, It certainly seems like some what's going to come out of this is going to be pretty exciting so i'm I'm hopeful Uh, and it sounds like you're hopeful
3: yeah i think you know over the past couple weeks there's been a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of emergency meetings but uh frankly i feel more excited and energized about the future of paizo about the future of gaming than i have in uh quite a long time
2: so buy paizo's games pick up some pathfinder books go to your go to your nearest game store um and and pick one up or two or three um jason anything else you want to plug at the end here uh yeah you can learn more about paizo in our games uh that would be
3: pathfinder and starfinder at Mm -hmm. paizo.com we have a blog there talking about the uh orc and we'll have undoubtedly have more to say about it here in the coming weeks uh as for me you can find me on all the various social media platforms at backslash jason bullman b-u-l-m-a-h-n
2: Thank you, Jason, uh both for sitting down for this interview and for all of all of the many, many countless hours I have spent playing games that you had a hand in making. Um Thank really you, Robert. We'll you. have
3: to get together and roll some dice together soon.
2: I would love that. All right, everybody. Absolutely. That's a sode. Uh see you tomorrow.
0: more podcasts from cool zone media visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio radio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts you can find sources for it could happen here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources thanks for listening happy pride from tomboy x celebrating pride and the queer community all year queer founded queer run and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear swimwear and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin tomboy x just dropped their pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6x visit tomboyx.com
4: xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month no matter what kind of entertainment you love